This is InsureTech Radio. I'm Connor Sweetman. This week's guest is Matt Hodges Long of Track My Risks and InsureTech UK. Matt Hodges-Long is the CEO and co-founder of Track My Risks, a SaaS risk and compliance platform. Matt is also the co-founder of InsureTech UK, a trade association for InsureTech startups in Great Britain. Matt got his first taste of entrepreneurship when he was just 14. He was still at school and the students were split up into different groups and given a project to start their own business. So each group was given a couple of pounds to get them going And their goal was to just make the money back. But Matt's group were thinking bigger. They wanted to make a big profit, a load of cash. So they decided what's the best way to do that. Of course, run a couple of school discos. But they had no idea that this would get them into so much trouble. Here's Matt. Yes, that was one of my my close calls for expulsion. Um, Yeah, I was um, sort of probably the first foray into business really um, at the age of about 14 or 15 um, studying business studies we had a NatWest competition where uh, we got into groups of six people and I think everybody got about five or ten pounds of startup capital this was a very long time ago um, to go and build a business so that's what we did Um, there was no discussion at the start about where the profits would be distributed um, and needless to say, our group um, made a thumping profit, which was, uh, I think, about £1,500. What was and, the business uh, idea? So we, we, we ran school discos. So we set up a promotions company and we, we, we ran school discos. for. We did three of them, um, which all were sold out and did very well. Um, and when the other sort of groups were making um, things out of pieces of wood and doilies, um, yeah, we were running discos and making a lot of money. Um, so that was all good. It was a big... Um, big pat on the back until it came to the point where we sort of distributed the profit and uh, the school felt that it should go to the school and to charity and I felt as a an entrepreneur that it should go into our pockets and reward us for our hard work. Do you remember um, the conversation? And from that point it all fell apart. Do you remember the conversation with the school? Uh, yeah, well they tried to have a conversation with me. I wasn't listening as, you know, as far as I was concerned. Uh, you know, a deal's a deal, a profit's a profit and uh, that's, that's for me. I'm one of the founders, it goes to me and it goes to the rest of the team. Um, and uh, yeah, they didn't think that was very giving. So yeah, it sort of escalated and got a bit out of hand, really. And probably I didn't uh, uh, didn't handle myself in 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 the best way. I guess would be the way to describe it. Well, what happened in the end? Uh, I won. Uh, well, I, I won the <laughs> I won the battle. Whether I won the war or not, I'm not sure. But uh, yeah, you know, it sort of it was very clear to me that um, you know I, I wanted to sort of link risk and reward. Um, together and hard work and get get um, get paid for that and sort of felt pretty affronted that someone else was going to take that away from me. Um, you know, that wasn't the deal as we started um, and they sort of applied a lot of hindsight to sort of say, well, now you've been a lot more successful than we expected you to be. Um, we, we expect you to do the right thing and give the money away. And at that point, the 15-year-old me said, no, that's a new bike. Um, <laughs> I want the money and I'm not going to let it go. So it became a point of principle, really. But uh, yeah, whether it was the best way to handle it or not, I'm, I'm you know, pretty sure it wasn't. <laughs> yeah, it was all a learning experience. Do you, do you remember what uh, what your parents said to you and what you said to them about it? Well, they were used to me being, um, should we put it, headstrong. Um, other people would call it being a little shit. But um, <laughs> they, you know, they, they were trying to encourage me to do the right thing and um, but found it pretty hard to uh pretty hard to enforce it 
Um, and at that point, you know, really at, at that age, I was just going to dig my heels in and, and, and make a point of it. And, you know, quite quite what the collateral damage was at that point, I didn't really care. It was a principle. And, um, you know, I wasn't going to be moved or talked down off the fence. The other the other five people in the team all, um, all capitulated um, when they came under a bit of pressure and, and I didn't. And I sort of looked around at that time and thought, well, maybe maybe that makes me different to you. Um, and again, I'm not sort of advocating that anyone should behave like that at that age, but that certainly gave me uh, some, showed me that I had that sort of inner steel to keep going, even if people were telling you that you're wrong or you're an idiot or whatever. And I think that's a, a key attribute or, or character trait or flaw, whichever way you look at it, to be a successful entrepreneur, you need to, there will be a lot of naysayers along the way and you've just got to keep keep going and believe in yourself, really. Absolutely, it's a, it's a great lesson to derive it. Obviously, you probably weren't seeing it that way at the time, but in hindsight, it's a, uh, it's fantastic. Um, so after school, then, wh- where? How did you continue your entrepreneurial streak? Um, well, I did. I didn't really. I sort of dropped it at that point. And sort of taught myself into the fact that I needed a proper job and a, and a proper education. <clears throat> so I went off to university to um, study uh, a degree in construction management. Um, and during that, I uh, worked for a summer for Barrett Developments, the house builder, and uh, they asked me to stay on and join them full time. So I ended up um, finishing the degree over four years part time after that. So I did a year full time and then four years part time to get my degree done. So I sort of went into the real world for a period of years and then um, really through a, a number of different jobs, I got to the point where I felt that I needed to get back into the sort of the entrepreneurial world. So that happened in uh, the year 2000 is when I actually sort of cut off from having a proper salary and um, struck out on my own. Wow. And of course, the construction industry is quite a, a fast-paced in- industry. And um, you had a near miss on a site, didn't you, that uh, caused you to change your perspective a bit? I did. Yeah, absolutely. And this is really where the sort of the story around how I got into sort of risk management and um, health and safety and compliance sort of came about. And that was, you know, very young, inexperienced site manager, had a big um, big equipment failure uh, because we were rushing and literally sort of pebble dashed a, a residential street with uh, with concrete and aggregate. Um, luckily, was nobody was hurt, but I think we did about £200,000 worth of property damage to the neighbours' houses and vehicles and things like that. Um, and you can imagine the sort of the the investigation that took place after that event. Um, and that's really where I sort of started realising one look at the personal liability I've taken on um, with a complete absence of, of training um, and due regard for, for health and safety. Um, but also a lot of the paperwork that I probably would have needed to, um, you know, if things had escalated further or, you know, people had been hurt didn't actually exist. Um, and I was completely disorganized and just focused on getting the job done quickly, cutting corners, I guess, as, as a, you know, in a youthful way, uh, when a company offers you a lot of money to, to get things done on time, um, you, you follow the money. And, uh, that was sort of a real le- lesson for me that, uh, you know, that could have gone completely differently. Luckily I dodged the bullet, but, um, for a lot of other people, it doesn't, doesn't end up as, uh, you know, as well. Um, so you really do need to sort of get on top of this sort of stuff in the background. Which is sort of the the early genesis of track my risks, really. Cool. So, so then, how did you? So, you decided to cut off your salary. So, tell me about the decision to actually do that. Uh, the decision was made for me, really, in the sense that um, I was at a company called Regis, the serviced office company. I was heading up new product development for them globally, 
um, they hit uh, sort of on the crest of a wave, and then the the market changed, and they ended up. Um, you know, go, go, elements of it going into administration. So at that point, they said, "Look, you know, we don't need to be developing new products." Um, offered me a few roles that I didn't want, and at that point, I thought, you know, maybe this is the opportunity to take my leave and go off and do something um, on my own. So that that was the that was the point. So it sort of um, it helped that I was given a little bit of money to to go off and spend a bit of time working out what I was going to do. Um, but it just felt like the time was right. I sort of felt, you know, I've spent a number of years now working, taking salary. Um, let's go back to the original passion, which was to do something for myself. Um, and uh, that's what I did with uh, two very young kids. And uh, again, my wife wasn't particularly pleased with with that decision. But, you know, I, I decided that's what I was going to do. And again, it, I think there's a, a level of selfishness that you need to be able to follow that passion. And I think uh, I, I completely understand the vast majority of people that would not want to do that and wouldn't want to put themselves under that pressure. And I think, again, that's the difference between somebody that's an entrepreneur and somebody that isn't. And I, and I think they're both great ways to be. I think it's just important that, you know, you're true to yourself as to what you are and what you're made of. And for me, it's this weird lifestyle is, is what's right for me. Um, but it, you know, it's, it's, it's had its challenges along the way and still does. And was track my risks, the first business you went after or was it something else? No, this is, uh, number five, I think. Oh, right. um, Number, away, so is that, this is this is this is the latest one. So now I've had. I was going to say, is that including sorry. the uh, the pro- the school disco promotions business? <laughs> no, I don't count that one as a real one. That wasn't <laughs> that wasn't a legal entity. Um, no, no, I've had um, a uh, sales and marketing consultancy for the property industry. Um, I've had a, I've run a or uh, founded and run a um, a property listings business, commercial real estate um, in. Ireland, UK, Holland, Germany. Um, that that set up as a effectively a forerunner to the sharing economy. That sort of started life as a as a site where large corporates could list all of their vacant strategic space around the world and then trade it with each other. A sort of um, recycling underutilized space is where that started and ended up becoming a, a quite popular listing site um, until I sold it. So yeah, various things, bike hire for triathlon, but you, you name it, I've done a lot of things. Quite a variety there. <laughs> Normally related B two B and normally property related or you know uh, business services related um, sort of general area. Never done anything in, in really in retail or you know fashion or food or anything like that. So I'm very much a sort of B two B services person. The outlier there seems to be the the, the triathlete bike. Is, there, is that a passion of yours outside of work? Yeah, it was. It was, and I I made that mistake of turning a hobby into a business, which. Um, was great fun, but it ended up sort of um, taking all of my weekends through the summer months, and uh, you know it wasn't good for having a young family. Really, it wasn't conducive to that. But you know it was great fun. I met lovely people, um, got to play with a lot of bikes, um, met lots of sort of famous people that turned up to sports and needed help, and you know travelled over the country doing it. But it wasn't uh, it wasn't a sustainable business um, for me. But um, as a business model, renting inanimate objects is a very profitable. Uh, business if you get it right um, but you know it is a customer service business and uh, you need to be where the customers are and typically that's during leisure time um, which didn't work for me so ended up parting with that um, but you know it's good fun good fun while it lasted yeah I think you're it's an interesting point you make about uh, turning your hobby into a business because I think that's probably the dream that most that most people would have you know they have some sort of passion at the weekend whether it be 
uh, triathlon races or stamp collecting or or whatever uh, podcasting um and uh, trying to figure out a way to turn that into a business but uh but you're saying so it's not as it's not all it's cracked up to be no i, I like a bit of separation between between the two i like a hobby to be a hobby i don't i don't, I don't necessarily want to monetize a hobby um but you know a lot of people do and they're very successful at it but you know the, the the appeal can wear off especially when you're working and supporting that kind of environment that you, you see an event going on and you think i'd like to be taking part in that but i'm actually here working yeah um and it's it, it, it's very difficult to, to keep up the level of enjoyment i think it must be similar for professional sportsmen or whatever that, that um when you're doing something that you love as your hobby as a job it's very hard to keep it fresh and and, and stop the novelty from wearing off um, you know, I, I didn't manage to do that very well. I ended up sort of resenting it. Really, I just wanted to, um, you know, c- cut the ties and actually take part in the events and uh, enjoy the buzz without having to worry about, uh, you know, servicing customers all the way through. Um, so, how did Track My Risks come about? So, Track My Risks came out of um, getting together with um, my now um, business partner and co-founder Richard Carmen. Um, we were both at a point where. Uh, we were looking to start a business um, independently. And we sat down, and sort of said, "Look, you know, what can we, what can we do?" And I said, "Look, I think there's big opportunities in risk management and governance and compliance." You know, from what I've seen around supporting various companies around the world, um, he had the technology skills from running digital agencies. Um, we sort of said, "Well, okay, well, let's let's look at whether we can build a business in in this subject area." Um, and at that point, he knew nothing about risk management or compliance or anything like that really over and above being a small business owner himself over the years so we sort of sat down and brainstormed different ideas um and said you know we, th- we think there's a uh, there's a very big, big market opportunity here um you know in the way that um, companies have got salesforce for managing their sales process and hubspot for managing marketing and zero for managing accounting when it comes to managing the big grown-up stuff of, of governance, risk, compliance, and evidencing that program, um, there isn't an available um, or easily available software-as-a-service platform out there for managing that business process. So we felt that that was a big unmet need um, and started building product to um, to meet that need. And what was the first iteration of the of TrackMan Risks? So the first, first iteration that, that sort of Die to death is the wrong word. We we killed it before it got the opportunity to die to death. But effectively, we we came up with the concept that um, effectively an AA for businesses, you know, the the automobile association. So it was a more of a crisis management solution where um, you subscribe to our service, and if there was a problem, um, you know, the impact disaster or interruption, you could ring our 24-7 number and then we would help you recover from that situation and bring experts to bear to solve whatever problem it was. Um, and, uh, you know, so effectively you'd pay a small subscription and that would allow you to get to our team of experts to actually um, recover you from that problem or help you recover from the problem. Mm. So that was the first generation um, of what we did. Um, met with a muted success. Um, but in doing that, we found that to be able to provide good quality advice when people called in, we needed to know a lot more about their business. And we needed to know a lot more about their business prior to them having an incident. Because when they had the incident, the last thing they want to do is spend half an hour on the phone explaining what their business is and what it does. So we started looking at ways of being able to capture 
important information about a business in a digital platform. And that effectively what led to the creation of Track My Risk as it is now as a digital system of record for governance, risk and compliance documentation. Um, so that sort of grew out of there. And then we got into, well, you know, what's, what's the compliance status of this piece of documentation? You know, is this insurance policy in date? Has it been renewed? And then a workflow around that, which reminds an organization or people within an organization when they've got to take action. Um, so that effectively is what we have now within Track My Risks is a, a really simple automated way of managing all of this underlying um, evidence around governance, risk and compliance. And was that a hard decision to, I suppose, kill that first iteration or was it pretty obvious at the time? I, I think it's obvious. I think, you know, it, it, one of the things I have learned from you know, being old and doing lots of businesses is, you know, when to when to admit that you've got something wrong or maybe you've got something right but the timing's wrong. Mm. So, for example, with, with a greater density of customers or, or number of users on our platform, there's no reason why that initial concept couldn't be relaunched against a much broader uh, group of customers. But scaling a small business like that is really difficult without the right type of distribution. So we're very much focused now on building volume within within the platform. Um, and the other thing that we learned is that working with distribution partners is the right way to do it. So working with a company that could put two, three, four, five thousand customers onto our platform for a reason gives us the scale to then to be able to look at working with those partners to say what other products or services do your customers need and now we've got the digital distribution channels to be able to do that so um, you know that one may one may well come back the one that we started with but it wasn't the place to start yeah um, and what are the next steps to track by risks what are you hoping to achieve over the next couple of years I think making um, so from a category perspective, you know, what we actually do, we, we create these digital systems of record for you know, single version of the truth for governance, risk and compliance within an organization. And it allows them to co collaborate with whether it's insurance brokers or um, consultants or regulators, other members of staff or whatever within that secure platform. So step number one really is to turn that from being a strange activity into something that's normal. So in a two or three years' time, it would be great if most organizations said, yeah, we've got a system of record for governance, risk, and compliance. And then the secondary question would be, and we'd like that to be track my risks. Um, it doesn't have to be, but you know, at the moment, they're not even doing the first bit to a degree of certainty, so let alone doing it with us. So we're very much working with early adopters at the moment and having to sort of gently persuade and cajole to say, this is a really good thing to do and look at all the ways that you can keep yourself out of prison or away from regulatory fines um, or retain customers by having this kind of infrastructure in place. So it's always about education at the moment, um, as opposed to somebody knowing what they need and then saying, who can we buy this solution from in the marketplace? And then we get the inquiry. So it's very much outbound rather than inbound at the moment, generally for us, but it, you know, that is starting to change. Cool. And um, and who in organisations are you dealing with? Is it usually like a is there a chief risk officer or a CEO or FD or who who typically is your main point of contact or the main point of responsibility uh, for for uh, these issues? So it varies massively depending on the size of the organisation and its makeup. So in a smaller business, typically it would be the CFO or the CEO um, or an office manager potentially. Um, 
but in a larger organization then you get into risk departments where you get into information security teams or um, various groups like that so you might be we might be working with, a, with one department of a much larger organization to run a particular process um, typically the type of character is this sort of the, the company grown up the operationally focused person that sort of works in a binary world you know that things are either right or wrong they're there or they're not there as opposed to the more creative side of the business we don't tend to do very much with sales teams for example um, apart from being users of our platform to provide information to support bids but in terms of setting the environment up getting it populated managing the evidence that sits within it typically that tends to be more the sort of operational people within a business it might be a compliance manager or a uh, operations manager those sorts of people Cool. And how do you see yourself in kind of the insure tech space? Because I suppose um, when I think about insure tech, you know, I, I, so I'm an underwriter. Uh, so I kind of usually think about that kind of um, under, underwriting value chain. So like, wh- where do you where do you kind of fit w- within so insure the insure tech ecosystem? Um, on the edge. Um, but but on the edge for a reason. So we you know we do not distribute regulated products. You know we, we do not provide insurance. But what we do is we provide a tool that either either makes um, the insurance market um, more efficient at selecting risks or managing risk of existing clients. So helping them behave and you know evidence their their controls um, or alternatively. Ultimately, we're looking at behavioral measurement of people that are managing their risk programs on our platform. Um, and in the future, we would look to provide data that can help correlate that to claims, etc. So really, at the forefront of, of being able to automate or provide better quality data that feeds into underwriting. And, and when I think of underwriting, I don't just think about insurance. I think about underwriting debt. Um, I think about um, valuing investment managing investment um i think about supply chain risk for um buyers you know for larger companies that are looking at their supply chain so these are all areas where an organization might want to get some measures around the risk that's embodied within the company that they're trading with so we're we're at the early stages of doing that but we're starting to see some really interesting trends come out of our user data already um so that that as we grow our volume of, of, of users um will increase exponentially and then it's a question of how do we go about anonymizing that and then mining that information that we can we can feed from a behavioral perspective what, what kind of trends have you seen uh, can you give us any examples what we're starting to see at the moment is that um, the companies that come onto our platform that are almost obsessive about keeping all of their controls in date um, so not going out of compliance that are adding in a sort of a a number of controlled documents that we would expect to be normal. So, for example, in a school, we'd expect to see over 150 pieces of controlled documentation. So if a school comes on and they've only got 25, that would start to lead us in a direction to think that, you know, either they're not engaged or they're deficient. Um, And then we start to see that when it comes to regulatory inspections and audits and people that are having trouble in audit may well have a lot less um, GRC documentation than, than a company that sails through. So we're starting to see, it's embryonic at the moment, we are starting to see um, correlations, but it, it, it's not statistically relevant yet. We're still working on that. But um, it's more about sort of confirming when we speak to an organisation, our gut feel of where they are from a maturity perspective, um, 
that correlates directly to the size of the environment that they manage within our platform and the frequency at which it's accessed. Cool. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see what you come up with there because I suppose you have a um, a, a very real touch point with um, with the insureds. So yeah, you can see and what you're doing kind of will hopefully influence their behaviour as well. And yeah, and, that's what it's all about. It's about what you know. I think from a risk selection perspective, I think you know, you, if if a company came to an insurer and said, look, you know, we are on this platform. And you know we we believe in getting things right. Then I think that's a great leading indicator towards you know they're, they're probably a better risk than than average. Um, but then if you can actually look at or they can expose behavioural data to you, then that actually confirms what they've told you. And in, in, in that sense, it's a lot like a sort of a telematics box in a driver's car, a young driver's car, because they can tell you that you know trust me, I'm I'm really responsible. I drive like a 22 year old, even though I'm 17. But where's the data to support that so if they can turn around and say here's three years worth of driving data um i'm now 20 and i actually drive like a 40 year old then you've got some meaningful objective data there to you know to, to price that risk as opposed to um you know I, luckily i didn't manage to crash over the last three years or more to the point i passed my test at 17 and i haven't actually driven for three years so therefore my record's as clean as a whistle but i have no objective measure about the quality yeah. of your driving because you haven't done any of it. Um, so there's a lot of people that fall into that category that, you know, don't have anything in place but haven't actually fallen under a bus yet. So they're blemish-free. Um, doesn't make it right. Um, the, right. The, you know, their, 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 their control is, is absent. Yeah, so the difference between lucky and good, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. Um, cool. That's uh, that's powerful stuff. Um, so you you were one of the founders of InsureTech UK. How did you get involved in that, and how did you found the organisation? I got a call, um, I think back in November last year, from um, James York at Worry and Peace. So it's James, uh, John Warburton from Concilio, and, and Niall Risk, uh, Niall Barton from Risk. Um, got together somewhere and were chatting about the fact that insurtechs in the UK didn't really have a voice or any representation that sort of brushed under the carpet within um, with, within fintech and um, you know the, the sort of a, a part of BIBA and a part of the MGAA etc. So thought it would be a good idea. Um, I was one of the people that got a call from them to say do you agree with our thinking and I said yeah absolutely of course we do um, and from that we ended up um, forming getting sort of 30 like minds together to form this alliance, which we called InsureTech UK, uh, appointed a company called Political Intelligence to run the secretariat. Um, and we, you know, within six months, we've now got over 50 um, InsureTech founders as, as members um, and just coming up to 20 corporate associates and partners that are helping to fund the organization, including people like Hiscox and Lloyds of London. So um, you know we're we're it, it's going arms and legs really it's been a, an amazing success mm. um, and we've got our formal launch on the 11th of June um, where the Lord Mayor of London is coming um, and uh, an MP and it's a London Tech Week the the inaugurate you know inauguration or launch of InsureTech UK as a formal trade association. Fantastic and um, where can listeners find out more about that? Uh, at InsureTechUK.org. Um, or just hit me up on, on LinkedIn or, or Twitter or Matt at trackmyrisk.com and I'll point you to the right people. So cool. um, very easy to, to get in touch and, you know, get involved is what I would say. Yeah, so what are the objectives of InsureTech UK? I think 
this still being sort of defined, but effectively one is to get to get a group of people together, influential people together as a, as a single voice. But what, what has emerged from it is there is a significant requirement for lobbying. Um, so the, the group are doing a lot of work with the Department for International Trade, um, lobbying on things like the treatment of IPT, VAT on uh, the treatment of VAT on things like Google advertising, um, the treat tax treatment on um, early stage investment in, in insure tech. Mm. Uh, there's some some problems there with the way that um, insurance effectively is is um, there's some pretty in the UK there's some pretty aggressive uh, tax structures for investors into early stage companies called SCIS EIS and there's a blanket sort of um, uh, exclusion for insurance related or insurance businesses so that's all about arguing that um, insurance and the definition of balance sheet is not something that most of the insure takes do therefore the insurance classification shouldn't count and therefore they should be allowed to do offer shares under this tax efficient structure. So, you know, it's a particularly sort of insure tech startup kind of problem. Um, and a lot of lobbying is going on with government to um, sort that out. Um, my particular part around membership and operations is more looking at how do we help promote our members and our partners with, with great events, with online tools, with podcasts like this, for example, um, to actually get the message out there and, and give our members assets that will help them grow their businesses. Mm. So that, that's my part. I'm not involved in the, in the lobbying. Um, and then we have a best practice group who are looking at standards and governance and um, uh, compliance support and things like that for, for the member organizations. Great. No, it sounds like you're really member focused and, you know, dealing with issues that um, every business owner will uh, will be aware of and will be thinking about. So, no, it sounds like a fantastic yeah. initiative. What, what, what's great that's come from it, really, the buzz of, of, of getting those founders in a room and what I never realized would happen is that health, diversity, well-being, those sorts of human issues, which aren't just, you know, how are we going to get more traffic from Google or, you know, how do we deal with this tax issue through our lobbying? It, the real sort of human stuff as well, which I haven't seen in the trade association before of any of the ones I've been involved with in the past. And, it, you know, it really is a, um, a comfortable place to be. And, you know, you're amongst friends, basically. And although some of us compete with each other um, within the organization, it's, it's, um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a higher purpose that we're all working towards. Um, and, you know, that, that's been really good and totally unexpected for me when we set this up. Great. Look, I think that's a great place to end, Matt. Um, so people want to check out that event on the 11th of June. It's next Tuesday. Oh, God. Oh. No, and, uh, it's all, um, we're fully subscribed, unfortunately. There's oh, are you? Well, then I'll just um, put this bit working, out. <laughs> I'm working on a cunning plan at the moment to see if we can live stream. Oh, good idea. Um, uh, recording video and, and, and you know, we'll be pushing that out on our social channels as well. So, um, But, you know, it will be bigger and better next year when we do the next one. So uh, if you miss this one, then everybody's welcome to next year's. Brilliant. And, um, yeah. I know you have a train to catch, so I'm going to let you go. Thanks very much for taking the time, Matt. Thanks, Connor. Cool, and I'll chat to you soon. Take care. Cheers.